All right, good morning. Grab your Bible. You know how this works. We're jumping back in. Second uh, Corinthians chapter 8, that's what we've been working through. We're going to keep keep going in, well, we've been in Second Corinthians. We're going to keep going in chapter 8. But uh, anyway, grab Bible, go there. I, I mention this every week. I'll continue to say it. This is just me preaching through the text. I say just. I don't ever mean just. It's a big deal. But my point is this is not church. This is me preaching a text to a camera that you're able to see and pull out, you know, pull out from God's word some of the things that hopefully I'm God showing you through me. But ultimately it'll be tonight when we gather as the church that we get an opportunity to really wrestle through and talk about what God's word has to say, to pray together, to really be able to watch each other's back through prayer and to be able to uh pray for others and the concerns of others in that way as well. And we eat, man, we have a good time. So we'd love for you to come. You can find us online multiple ways. We'll tell you where we're at. We're in Tempe, Arizona, but you can find us on social media, on the web, uh, website, all that good stuff. We're happy to let you know how to come hang out with us. We want you to. Believe me, it's uh, we have a great time. So looking forward to this week. Um, we are moving on, though, with the cross-shaped light. That's what we've been talking about. And uh, we've been using a verse from 1 Corinthians, although we've been in 2 Corinthians, and that verse is... Paul said, for I've decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So today, uh, I want to give you the key to living without need. And, and if you feel pretty excited about that, good, you should. So the key to living without need. You want to know how to live without having needs or concern about need? That's today. And, and I feel like, you know, being without need is a goal that probably everyone spends their life trying to achieve that is, that is a goal that everybody's reaching for throughout their whole life but is it something that's ever really achieved you ever stopped and thought about that is it something that's ever really achieved living without need and most people assume the wealthy have that hey they, they live without need they've, they've achieved it but there's always the need to make more wealth or the concern that that wealth might run out if they overinvest it or move it in two different, too many places or overspend it. And either way, no matter how much you have, listen to me, because this is a big truth you need to know. No matter how much money you have, it's always one crime on your part, one crime or one war if war breaks out or one economy crash away from being gone. Uh, there's there's so many ways that no matter how much wealth you have, there's so many ways that it could still be lost. So how do you truly find living without need? How do you get there? Is it actually possible? Well, in God's family, when we're living according to his economy, the answer to that question is a yes, 100% yes. So today we're going to read 2 Corinthians chapter 8. I'm going to read just a few verses here, and then, of course, we'll back up. But I'm going to start in verse 13. Uh, Paul says to them, For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need, so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As it is written, Whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Let me pray. Lord, your word is amazing. Thank you for what... 
Um, you've shown me this week as I've studied this text, and I pray, God, as I communicate it today, that it always and forever stays your word, not mine. Pray you're glorified uh, as we study it today, and I ask it in Christ's name. Amen. So when you were a kid, did you ever, uh, when you were a little kid, did you ever go to school and bargain with your lunch? You know, I feel like that was a big part of school when, when I was real young, you know, bargaining with your lunch. The worst was, though, when you only had a healthy lunch option. Mom was all concerned about your health, so your only options were healthy things. Nobody wanted that junk, you know. But there was always the, the kid that had the best and the coolest foods with the most artificial flavors and the most artificial colors and all of that stuff. And there was always a crowd around him when he started handing things out. But there was also the guy or girl um, who would give you their last cookie. You just knew that about them. They, they would give you the last cookie they had. And, and if, if you asked, or even if you didn't sometimes, if they just saw you didn't eat anything or you weren't eating anything, they might just offer you their sandwich. Do you think that guy or that girl, do you think they could expect that favor to be returned if there was a time when they didn't have food? Pretty sure. Pretty sure with certainty somebody would have been there for him, you know? How about somebody who's perfectly healthy? Let's take it to a higher level. Somebody who's perfectly healthy, who gives away one of their kidneys to somebody who uh, has no good healthy kidney, and in and, and giving it away gives that person a, a chance at life, but it takes a kidney away from them. Do you think that person can expect a measurable level of need being met if they had it you know these these two comparisons seem so far apart and in some ways i realize they are but ultimately they're both considered acts of love and here's the deal if they're in christ's family if these acts of love if these people cases that we're talking about here if they're in christ's family then there should be a mutual love from each side that's a mutual love from both sides, whether the giver or the get or the receiver, and it should be equal in their desire to act on the needs of the other. So whether no matter who the giver and the receiver is, they should be interchangeable at all times. That's that's the idea. So if we could just realize that, guys, if we could just realize that the best way to feel secure and to know that our needs are going to be met is to let go. Of what we think is required for it. To let go of what it is we think is required that our needs will be met. And to show our love for others, believers particularly, to show our, our love for other believers by meeting their needs instead. So we let go of what we think is necessary for our own, you know, needs to be met and instead we start to invest that in meeting others needs believers here so the key to living without needs is to recognize and i'll I'll look at it in three ways in this text to recognize that giving proves love that love requires actions not words and that actions promote giving more giving so giving proves love we'll start right there in verse six i'm backing up here picking up where we left off Excuse me. Second Corinthians eight verse six. Accordingly, or basically what that means is so, and it's based on what he's already said and defined here, which is what we talked about last week about these Macedonian poor churches giving. So accordingly, we urged Titus that 
as he had stated, uh, started, so he should complete among you this act of giving. So Titus had been sent by them at least a year ago to start supporting the giving of this church uh, in Corinth. They're collecting their giving for these churches that were in Jerusalem that were being persecuted and under attack, which is the same place that the Macedonian churches were, were giving to that Paul talked about last week. And Paul urges Titus to get it done. Urging is a big word. He's telling the Corinthians in this letter that he's writing that we urge Titus, get it done, man. And remember now, they didn't have the Pony Express back then. There was no Wells Fargo to carry all that money and do those things. Somebody had to travel to Corinth, spend some time with them, helping them understand the need and helping them understand giving and how that works, and then teach the importance of doing it, and then kind of spend some time with them to collect that. It wasn't a one-time gift. It was a period of time where they, they would have been given and collecting that up and building it up. And then at some point when they felt like they had it ready, they were to travel back with it. So Paul is urging Titus to get it done, come back with it. And remember, by the way, in this, pay attention to the context here. All the context here is church to church. Paul is writing to a church, talking about needs in a church. The local church is the whole focus here to continue raising support together to meet the needs of sister churches. It's what he's saying. It's not general charity that he's talking about here. That's not what he's talking about. So the point is, you have to be in a church to experience this. You have to be in a church to experience this. Otherwise, they don't know you're in need, and you don't know what needs they have. So none of this is relevant to you if you're not in the church, in a local church. Not a rogue Christian, but in a local church in order to know this. It's not about a, a little principle here about being generous on God's behalf, and then God's going to bless you. Like, I'm going to give this five, bu- five bucks in my pocket to a homeless person. I ain't saying that's bad. I'm just saying that's not what he's talking about. Giving that five bucks to somebody who's homeless and then expect God's going to just bless you back. But at the same time, you don't have any time to go to church or be part of his bride, which is what the church is. This is specifically about believers in a local body giving to a local body to take care of each other. And also to support the needs of Not just the churches they're supporting, but those churches supporting churches around them and maybe even themselves who are in need. Look at verse 7. But as you excel in everything, saying you you guys already excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in earnestness. That means like eagerness to act. And in our love for you, most translations say your love for us because how they excel in his love for them is kind of weird. So it, it really reads better, probably more accurately, that they excel in their love for Paul and his his crew. It says, see that you excel in this act of grace also. So these Corinthians weren't poor. They're not persecuted like the uh, the churches in Jerusalem that they're being asked to take care of. They're not uh, they're not impoverished with extreme poverty like these churches back in in the other areas of Macedonia. These guys are more like sophisticated. But they're party style sophisticated, you know. And Paul says that the sophistication of faith and speech and knowledge, hey, that stands side by side with generosity. That's, those things go hand in hand with generosity. 
and grace fuels it all. Look what he says, an act of grace. He says it twice, this act of grace also. What is it? Well, I read it last week, 2 Corinthians 8, verse 3. He says, the Macedonian churches gave according to their means, as I can testify, beyond their means and of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints in Jerusalem. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. That is the act of grace. He's saying, they're doing it, you do it, is what he's saying. Giving in the, giving is the essence of grace, one commentary said. Giving is the essence of grace and the evidence, I would add, of love. Okay? The evidence of love. Giving proves love. Look at verse 8. I say this not as a command. Notice he's saying that it's not a command, but to prove by the earnestness or eagerness, same word again, of others that your love also is genuine. Let me read the way that translates in a couple of others. The CSB translates it this way. I'm not saying that this is a command. Rather, by means of the diligence of others, I'm testing the genuineness of your love. Or the NLT translates it this way. I'm not commanding you to do this, but I'm testing how genuine your love is by comparing it with the eagerness of the other churches. That's the point that he's making. He's said all these things about these other churches, and he's testing it. Do you really love? Because let me show you how they love. Why is Paul emphasizing it's not a command here? Why is he making that point over and over? Why is he making sure they know it's not a command? Well, because it's about their heart about their heart he points out that there are poor churches and he brings them into that argument why because those who beg to give from extreme poverty beyond their means is there any question is there any question about their heart is there any question about their love for others in need their brothers and sisters, their family, people they don't even know, but their family. Is there any doubt that they love? No, not a chance. And Paul takes that comparison a step further, a huge step further, in verse 9. And we already talked about verse 9 last week, but let's read it again. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he goes, well, let me just take it to the point of Christ here. What grace? That though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by... Uh, his poverty might become rich. Was that a fair exchange? We talked about it last week. Not a chance. You consider his net worth, the creator of the universe, and yours, apart from him, yours. So let me ask you this. Is there any question, though, about the genuineness of Christ's love? Any question about the genuineness of his love? His giving reflected his love was genuine. It proved his love was true. When the Bible says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, they go hand in hand. How do you know God so loved the world? Because he gave his only son. Can you prove that God so loved the world? Yes, he gave his only son. That's what it means that we have been made rich, he said there in verse 9. It's that grace that's made us rich, and that grace is what we should spend, what we should give, especially those we claim to love who are part of our family. They should be receiving grace from us. Um, These dudes, man, these Corinthians, they're rich. 
The Macedonians, they were poor. There, there are rich churches and there are poor churches. And Paul, nor anybody else, is saying that one has to become the other. That's not what he's saying. It's about just giving yourself to God. Giving yourself to God and being obedient to what he says you should do with what's his already. One of the most often misquoted verses in the Bible uh, is the one that talks about God saying, I own the cattle on a thousand hills. Most people see that as a reference to, um, I can get what I want out of God because he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. The reference, uh, God is actually saying, I don't need your help. I own the cattle on a thousand hills, meaning I don't, I own everything already. I don't need you to give me anything. I own everything already. It's mine. The fact that you have it to offer to me in the first place is only because you took it from me or I made it available to you. So giving, though, proves love. Giving proves love. Love requires action, though. Look at verse 10. He says, and in this matter, I give my judgment. This benefits you. So fancy, kind of more complicated way. ESV is kind of cloudy on how they word that. But basically, he's saying, let me give you some good advice on this matter that will help you. Let me give you some good advice that will help you here. All right. He says, you who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. All right. Interesting that Paul notes that they not only decided to do it, but they decided to want to do it. See that? He's saying they decided to want to do it. Does giving come naturally? I mean, does it just, does it just come naturally and, and easily? You may say it does, but I'm talking about, I'm not talking about the leftover change in your pocket. I'm not talking about, hey, let me bail out this one situation or that situation. I'm not talking about giving that last cookie on your tray at lunch. That's not what I'm talking about. I, I, I'm talking about is, is even when it, even when it goes beyond what you would rationally give to anybody, even when it's going to someone you haven't met yet. Giving is something you determine to do. You make a lifestyle around it. And then it becomes something you desire to do. It's something you determine to do. You make a lifestyle around it. And then it becomes something you desire to do. If you're going to wait for your heart to want to give, it's never going to happen. It's never going to happen. If you're going to wait for your heart to just want to be that guy or that girl, it ain't ever going to happen. I don't know what stalled out the Corinthians here that Paul's having to say all this. We're not told. Maybe these false prophets that are in the picture were hosing Paul and accusing, you know, well, what's Paul doing with the money? If we give Paul the money, where's it really going to go? I, I don't know. Maybe they were in his ear about that stuff. And unfortunately, that's really easy to get tempted with, isn't it? Maybe you've been there before. Like, you've got the money. Okay, you know what? I'll give it, but uh, not if you're going to do this with it. I'll give it, but not if he's in that position. Or I'll give it, but not if you don't remove her from that. You know, all these conditions are strings on it, and it just ties up, and it doesn't go anywhere. Because, now, I'm not saying we shouldn't have some accountability in place for where you give and who you give to. I'm the same way with that. But I'm just saying that a lot of times things just get stalled and hung up because of our own problems, our own desires. Look at verse 11. So now finish what you're doing. He says, so now finish Doing it. Finish doing it as well so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. In other words, you want to do it, get it done. 
I love James chapter 2, verse 15. He says, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm, be filled, without giving them the things they need for the body, then what good is that? What good have you done to see a need and do nothing about it? In fact, James goes on to call that a sin. Just saying, giving proves love. Love requires action more than just words. It requires action, and actions promote more giving. Look at this, verse 12. He says, for if the readiness is there, if you're ready to do it, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. So he starts to give them some kind of a guideline here. He says the readiness is there. So they want to do it. But he's noting the heart is faltering on letting it go. Like you want to do it, but clearly they're having a problem letting it go because he's, he's trying to tell them to do it. Remember, the poor he talked about, they weren't just ready to let it go. They were not just in readiness. They were begging to give, right? Paul says it's acceptable. Acceptable means pleasing. It's a good word. It's not a negative word, but just note that Paul's not saying they couldn't give more. Remember the Macedonian churches gave beyond their means from extreme poverty. So he's not bashing them, but he's not. He's also not saying all you got to give is this. He's, but you know, but Paul's not trying to burden them with the same thing that the Macedonians did. They're just expected to give to what they're able to give. Okay, give to what they're able to give based on their claim that they're ready to do it. He said your readiness is there, so they're claiming they're ready to do it. Okay, well then let's get it done. Give it according to what one has. He says. You ever notice that in the Old Testament, there were set amounts set by God, mandated by God, uh, monitored by the people and the leadership, but they were determined beforehand by God under the law, but under grace. From Acts chapter 2 forward, from the start of the church forward, there is no amount listed. Go look. It's not in there. There is no amount listed. There is no tithe. I know we can fight about this, and I'm not going to do it because I'm looking at a camera and you're looking at me. But you want to hit me up? We'll talk about it. Either the, the the law has been fulfilled in Christ. There's no tithe. But before you get all excited about that, which by the way, if you do, proves where your heart is to begin with. <laughs> Just saying. Before you get excited about that, remember that we're told to give out of our wealth and out of our poverty. In both cases, giving out of our wealth and out of our poverty, which basically means no matter what condition we're in, it's his. It's all his. All of it. So how much do you give him? 10%? No. 20%? No. 50%? No. All of it. All of it. In fact, if you don't believe that, I mentioned it last week, you can go back and look at Romans chapter 12 where he says give your bodies as a living sacrifice that's everything you can go look at jesus who said unless someone renounces all that he has all that he even his own life he cannot be my disciple you can look at galatians where paul says in chapter two i have been crucified with christ no longer i live but christ who lives within me so before you celebrate that oh we don't have to give 10 percent anymore keep in mind no you give everything it's all his your life your family your resources, your home, your car, your everything. It, it's his. It belongs to him. But Paul's also not saying that anybody's supposed to go into debt. He's not saying that's, that's his point. You're giving according to your means. You're not supposed to go into debt to give. You're not supposed to give some consistent number that immediately bankrupts you. 
um, or leaves you in extreme poverty when you weren't there to begin with. That's, that's not the case, okay? And Jesus pointed out a great real-life example of this, illustrates it well. I'll just read it. I won't break it down. But in Mark chapter 12, verse 41, you may be familiar with the story. It says, he sat down opposite the treasury in the temple. And he watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. The poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and he said, look here, see this? Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. That doesn't mean that's what you're supposed to do. His point is the heart here. His point is the heart of her versus the heart of these other guys. Look at verse 13 of 2 Corinthians um, chapter 8. He says, For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness... Now, hold on a minute there, because fairness is a funny word. Fair? What's fair about it? I work 40 hours a week. I work 80 hours a week. I work for 25 years to get up to where I make this amount of money. I earned it. It's mine. Right? What do you mean fair? What, what, is, what does giving have to do with fairness? How does that even make sense? Who gave it to you, first of all? That's a good place to start. Whatever it is you have, who gave it to you? Just saying. And who needs it most? Who needs it most? If God gave it all, which he did, if God gave it all, then is it not fair for him to ask you, if he gave it all to you, whatever you have, and you have abundance, if he gave it all to you, is it not fair for him to ask you to share that with his, your family? Especially the ones that have need. That's the point. The ones that have need. Look at verse 13. He goes on, he says, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance in the future may supply your need. That there may be fairness. You see what he's saying there? You give to them and they're there to give to you. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over and whoever gathered little had no lack. So he's quoting Exodus chapter 16 when the manna was given. I'll read you what that says, but you can go back and look at the story in your own time. In Exodus 16 verse 16, it says this is when the Israelites had come out of bondage in Egypt and they were in the desert. And they were freaking out because there was no food in the desert. And God provided food miraculously. He says, this is what the Lord has commanded, Moses said. Gather of it, this manna, gather of it, each of you, as much as he can eat. You shall each take an omer, which is about two quarts, according to the number of the persons that each of you has in his tent. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered some more, some less. So some get more than that. Some get less than that. He gave them a clear amount, and yet still some get more, and some are trying to be humble and get less. But, look what it says, when they measured it with an omer, when they got home, so everybody gathers whatever, and they go home, and you measure out, did I get an omer, did I get more than an omer? Well, when they check, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. So, no matter what they did, it washed out evenly. Is that a supernatural act? It's what it sounds like to me. But either way, it goes on to tell you if they kept it overnight, it was rotten in the morning anyway. The point here was that no one had more than necessary for the day. 
and no one failed to have enough for the day. That, that was the point. And even if they did, like I said, it spoiled. So God was the provider for the day. And they could depend on him only for the day. And there was no chance here of stockpiling and taking advantage of somebody, of upselling, <laughs> trying to make a profit off of something God provided freely. You didn't have an option to do that. All were equal under God and fully dependent on God. That's the point. With the first church. In Acts chapter 2, let's jump a couple of thousand years into the future here. Acts chapter 2, verse 45. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. We mentioned this last week. Day by day, attending the temple together, breaking bread together in their homes. They received their food with glad and generous hearts. Same picture. Do you see that? Same picture. Except guess what? Nobody's weighing homers now. Nobody's weighing omers. In the desert with Israel, it was mandatory and obviously somehow moderated by God even. But with the church, it's given as a privilege. It's given as a privilege and, and simply expected, to tell you the truth, by those who are led by Christ and dwelt by the Holy Spirit. Of course they would do that. If they're led by Christ and dwelt by the Holy Spirit, of course they would share their resources. And listen, listen, listen. The principle here is not about extreme communal living. Some people have taken that, uh, good, solid church planning people have taken that to some extremes. I don't think it is meant to go to. In all cases, it's about the heart here. But it's not talking about extreme communal life. It's also not talking about socialism here. The principle is the body of Christ. Look at 1 Corinthians 12, verse 24, jumping back to his previous letter to them. He says, but God has composed the body, the body of Christ, verse 25, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. It's not about their bank accounts. It's about their care for one another. And if one member suffers, all suffer. If one is broke, in that sense, all are broke. That's the idea. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. One commentary said this, and it's really good. Christian giving does not aim at an exchange of financial burdens, but rather at an equal sharing of them and an equal supply of the necessities of life. The rich are not called upon to give so lavishly that they become poor and the poor become rich. That would simply prolong inequality. But those who enjoy a greater share of material benefits are called upon to make certain that those who have a smaller share through no fault of their own, are not in want. That's a beautiful thing. And look, wealth is not evil. There's nothing about being wealthy that's evil. It's not forbidden in church. None of that is true. But the idea of somebody being wealthy and holding on to that wealth while the local church is drowning in poverty, that is completely foreign to God's kingdom. Completely foreign to God's kingdom. Just telling you, it's not a hippie communal living. Like I said, it is not socialism. It's family. It's family that we're talking about. Family taking care of family by letting go of the demands of keeping my lifestyle. You understand that? It's family taking care of family by letting go of the demand to keep my lifestyle. All right? Note here, too, by the way, he says, nothing left over, no lack. That is balance, not excess. 
The guarantee is that your investment in family here means they will invest in you when you're in need. It's balance. It's security. It's not about financial rewards and excess. Sow your seed and get a multiplied million-dollar return on your seed. You just none of that. None of that junk. It's not about that at all. So note here. Question: Where can it break down? Where can it break down? Is it with the level of need? Oh man, you don't know how big this problem is. This problem is huge. This problem is millions of dollars huge. You don't know how big is that. Can it break down there? Can it break down on how the volume of the need, how widespread it is? Man, it's everywhere. My gosh, it's all over the whole state. It's all over the whole country. The need is out of control. The need, can it break down there? No. The one place this breaks down is with the givers. It's with the givers holding them, all of them, whether they're poor or wealthy. Financial position doesn't matter. It's the heart of the giver. That's where it breaks down. So the key, the key, the key, the kingdom way here, the kingdom way here is to secure your funds by making your hands free of them. The the key to secure your funds, to make sure that your needs are met here, is to trust the one who has the resources that meet all needs. And trust in him alone. And he's saying, look, let go of it. Give it to me. Let go of it. Give it to me. Let me use it to provide for your brothers and your sisters. And I promise you, I promise you that you will not be forgotten when need comes your way. That's what he's saying. So let's close up with this. How how practically do we respond? Well, simple. Give to your local church. Do it. Give to your local church. That's a big start. And your local church, if you're here, I pray it's Salt River Community Church. That's who we are. But whoever it is, and let's assume it's us in our case, you're giving to us as Salt River Community Church. Well, just like any other local church, we look to provide to support other believers through their local churches. How do we do that? If you're given to us, let's be specific. If you're given, I can't speak for every church, but I'll speak for us as pastor. If you're given to us, how, how are we doing that? Well, your giving supports immediately supports benevolence basically means we take care of our own. So, <coughs> excuse me, during COVID, there are multiple people that we have taken care of. I'm not going to say names or any of that. There's multiple people that your giving through this church has provided for, and in some cases, it's kept them in their home when they could have lost it. Uh, your giving, when when you give this way, it gives to do exactly what Paul's talking about, to support other local churches. We support an association of churches, and some of those churches are struggling. Some of those churches are having a hard time, and our giving helps support those churches. We do the same thing. We give it to them, and they take care of uh, disseminating it to the needs of the churches in the area. Mission. Well, we support uh, International Mission Board. We support North American Mission Board. We're part of North American Mission Board. We support, when I say we, I'm talking about the money you're giving. We support Native American work here in Arizona. We support, I won't name where, but we support church planning mission work in Europe, in Asia, and in Africa. Those are all areas where what you're giving goes to. That's things that are happening now, even in this little bitty church plant. 
that's meeting in our home at the moment. That is stuff we're already doing. And then we support you're giving, we, us, we support future churches, the multiplication of other churches so that other people can have access to these resources through the family of God. It's not about charity. It's about family taking care of family. That's what it's about. So maybe, look, maybe that's not you today. Maybe you wish you had a family like that. Sounds real good. Maybe you've been to some churches. It was nothing like that. Maybe you wish you had that kind of security. Maybe you wish you didn't worry about your needs being met. Maybe you're the person that's in major need. Maybe that's you. I I, I don't know. But I can promise you this. His door is open. The opportunity to know Christ, to know God, to know your creator, to be made right with him, and to be part of that family, that door is wide open. Until the day you die, that door is open. To you. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Listen, for God so loved you. Because you're part of the world that he gave his only begotten son. But here's the deal. That whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. You've got to put your faith in him. That's how you enter the family. And yes, that door is open right up to the day you die. Only problem is you don't know when that day's coming. So let's not waste time, man. Come be part of this family. His family. It is a huge family. And it's not perfect. But man, when it clicks right, it's beautiful. Family taking care of family. We want that to be you. Give your life to him today. You don't have to say anything fancy. Just tell him, I want to be yours. I want to be in the family. Forgive me. Forgive my sin. Bring me into your kingdom. You know, hit us up. We'll tell you exactly what that looks like and how to... Take steps forward from there. Let me pray for you. God, love you. You are awesome. Your word is awesome. Thank you, as always, for the privilege to unpack it. Pray uh, tonight as we get into it that you help us be able to lift each other up. But again, no matter what opinions we bring, we never take it from your word. It's your word only. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.